what's up what's up what's up y'all thought this was martin didn't you nope it's trap therapist the radio show welcome this is trap therapist the radio show with dalicia barner lcsw i'm the host of this radio show and the founder of trap therapist an amazing brand that showcases mental health professionals who not only look like you but are from where you're from As a licensed clinical social worker who was born and raised in the projects, it's important for me to create safe spaces for people who have similar experiences. Through Trap Therapist, I'm able to provide a platform for other mental health therapists from urban low-income backgrounds to transparently share their stories in a way that will humanize therapists and in turn break mental health stigma. Trap Therapist is unique because it confronts the reality that just because a therapist is of color doesn't mean they've spent any portion of their life below poverty level or in environments rich with violence and crime. So if you, like me and all of my guests, grew up in the trap but want to heal from it, stay tuned to gain mental health knowledge and inspiration. Hey everyone, welcome back to Trap Therapist, the radio show. We're here with Nydia Gucci. I didn't ask to pronounce your last name. How do I pronounce your last name? <laughs> it's Gweezy. It's like saying Tweety. Oh my God. I'm not going <laughs> Okay, so y'all heard her say it. I'm not going to even try to mess that up. So I will <laughs> let you do that. Exactly how she just said to pronounce it is how it should go. She is a licensed clinical social worker, got her undergraduate degree, bachelor's of social work from University of Vermont then graduated from Fordham University with a master's of social work, and her hometown is Bronx, New York, by way of Guadalupe, Honduras. She currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and has been in the field of behavioral health since 2011. She has experienced working with children, adolescents, and older adults in overcoming symptoms of anxiety and depression. Nidia also has experience of servicing survivors of commercial sex exploitation. She also works in an outpatient primary care setting in Atlanta, Georgia, servicing clients and addressing mental health needs on a short-term basis for about three or four sessions, and she uses solution-focused therapy for the patient-centered medical home program, which is a care delivery model where patient treatment is coordinated through their primary care team to ensure they receive necessary care to improve overall health outcomes. That was a mouthful, but it is amazing work. The title of the, the title of our episode today is Guadalupe Funda and Orchard Beach. So you are certainly going to have to explain to us more about your title because I'm sure we're all interested <laughs> in learning. <laughs> so Guadalupe is where my is the town that my parents are from, and I remember growing up like every summer before. So I'm the oldest of five, and before the twins were born, it was only three of us. So we would go to Honduras every other summer, and the beaches in Guadalupe are beautiful. Like it's just, and, and we don't even live far from the beach. So every day we just eat breakfast and then just go to the beach for the day. And Orchard Beach is the beaches in the Bronx, which is completely different oh, <laughs> than okay. what I remember seeing growing up. So my idea of a beach is what what's in Honduras. And granted, it's still a beach in the Bronx. It just looks very different. I'm sure. I can only imagine. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I haven't been to Guadalupe. I've been to New York and I have not been to the beach in New York, but I can only I can only imagine how that looks in comparison to Guadalupe. So it right. sounds like beaches pretty much dominated your childhood. But then also this comparison of life there and life here, which I know we'll get mm-hmm. into more later. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 
I think that the only other person we've had who didn't identify as fully African-American, if I can remember, was um, a young lady who had Jamaican roots. So this is interesting. Like, I love hearing about just other cultures and, you mm-hmm. know, there's so many different things that you can be and be black. Like, I don't think people right. really think about all that goes into that title. It's not just African-American mm-hmm. people. So that's interesting. Absolutely. So I think you're so, talking about Jennifer McPherson, right? From Philly? Yeah. I, it, yeah yes. Well, I did interview her, so it must have been her. You did? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Small world. That's a great point to make because, like, that's one of the things that always came up when I was growing up. It's like, oh, well, you're black, but you're not, like, black, black because your family's from Honduras. And I'm like, but I'm still black. <laughs> and I never really identified as well, I struggle with that, with identifying as Afro-Latina or even Latina because even in that community, the racism that does exist is almost like, oh, well, you're black, but, like, not us. So it was like yeah. this in between between am I really black or am I Latina or is this even an identity that I can really identify with? And as I've gotten older, I just identify with the, with my culture, which is more garifuna than anything, because that's something that's never going to go away. And it's something that I align with the most. So I'm not African-American, but I'm absolutely black. That's, that's a part of my identity that I honor, that I love, and it's very visible in me. Now, the Latina part, I want to say, is more cultural because of the language. But for me to say that this is what I align with, I don't. Gotcha. It, it's yeah. also so many ways that we isolate each other within our race. Like, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about racism and black versus white, but I think that we do it to ourselves, if not in an equal amount, definitely almost equal, which is absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous. Like, I remember going to undergrad and Really, that was the first time I was exposed to African cultures because there were a lot of Africans on campus. And the hatred between, like, Africans and then African-Americans, I'm like, what the heck? (laughs) This is so confusing. Whereas, like, well, Mm -hmm. y'all aren't us, so stop acting. It was just, it's a mess. I just, I don't Mm -hmm. understand it. But I guess we're all just trying to protect our territory. And, I mean, in many ways, it's probably a lot like the struggle to be a, a social worker or a counselor, or a you know, a marriage and family mm-hmm. therapist. Like there are these territories that we feel like we have to protect and make mm-hmm. ours, or we don't have an identity. Right, and even like in the field, like we we all do very similar work. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the approach might be a little bit differently, but the end goal is still the same, and that's to support the community. So I'm just like okay, well, good for you that you're this or you're that. Like, again, the end goal is still the same. So I focus more on that. It's like 5 plus 5 is 10, 9 plus 1 is 10, 6 plus 4 is 10. I don't care how we get there as long as we get it done. Yeah, I like how you put that with numbers. Now, as a social worker, I'm not good at numbers, so, but I can appreciate <laughs> that you use small ones for me. So thank you. <laughs> so this is another word I'm going to mess up. You said it earlier. Um what is Garifuna? I know I said that so, wrong. <laughs> you were close, very, very close. So it's Garifuna, and Garifuna okay. is my culture. So Garifuna is a mixture of West African, Arawak Indian, and, um, dang, how did I just draw a blank? Af- Afri- excuse me, West African, Arawak Indian, and Carib, Black Carib. Okay. And they 
they, of course, originated from West Africa and then um, intertwined with the culture in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And then when the British took over, the, the Garifuna people were exiled to Central America, specifically the island of Roatan, and then went into Belize, Honduras, Nicaragua. So my family is from Honduras. Um, but you see Garifunas oh. in, the, in the Central American coast. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what was your experience like growing up? I want to stop saying the word because I'm going to keep butchering it. And I don't know if it's worth to just avoid it or to say it wrong. But what was No, your... we'll get it. Getty okay, Funa. I'm going to keep trying. What was your experience okay. like growing up Getty Funa slash Honduran and being raised in South Bronx? I, I had other Getty Funa peers, so it didn't feel isolating per se, but I know that when it came to connecting, because going back to this, like, this paradigm of, like, race. So in the South Bronx, it is predominantly um, Latino and African-American. And then you have, like, your sprinkles of other represented races and cultures. So the school that I went to had was predominantly Latino and African-American. So even though there were a few Garifunas in the mix, when it came to like that division that did exist, you were either with the Spanish crowd or with the black crowd. And then here I am in the middle because I could identify with both. So it was always like, you know, pick a side kind of thing. And it's just like, why? (laughs) Why? Because again, I speak the language. Spanish is my first language and I learned English in like fifth grade. So as I got, better and more proficient with speaking English, I wasn't hanging out with the Spanish crowd as much because that connection wasn't there anymore. So it was always like, I just always like this tug, like I had to choose between this or that. And I felt somewhat connected to both. And your family, so your parents, did they ever learn English or do they still speak Spanish fluently? Um, eventually they learn English. So my mother's first language is Garifuna and she learned Spanish. I'm going to say like when she was a teenager, um, cause oh, she said okay. to me, like, it wasn't really the, the, the native or the language that she spoke. She was um, encouraged to learn more of it and got better once she started working in the city in Honduras. So that's how her Spanish got better. And then she learned English when she moved to the United States. So like I mentioned, it's five of us out of us five. I speak the most fluent Spanish out of my siblings. My sister, Emily, speaks it okay. My brother, um, Edwin, he speaks it, but you can tell that it's not his dominant language. And then the twins don't speak Spanish at all. So as my mother's English got better, the Spanish got weaker with the, with her, with our, well, my siblings, her kids. Gotcha. That makes sense. And then I hadn't realized until you just said that your mom's first language was Garifuna that it was a language too. So mm-hmm. how different are Garifuna and Spanish? Oh, it's very different. Very it's di- very okay. different. Mm-hmm. Wow. I would say the Garifuna language has um, a lot of African influence. So, like, I remember my sister, she told me she went to go get her hair braided at this African spot. And they were speaking. I'm not sure if they were from, like, Ghana or Nigeria. But they said something, and it translated the same to what it means in Garifuna. So if you hear it, it won't sound like Spanish or it won't sound like French either. But you can tell that it has deep African roots. Okay. Something I found interesting. Now, this was actually not even interesting. It was more hilarious. You put mm-hmm. that you would translate for your mom during tra- parent-teacher conferences. Can you tell us <laughs> more about that? Because that had me rolling. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. I was a translator before I even knew that was a thing. And I hated and if it. She as doesn't a kid, know about this until right now. We're sorry, mom. <laughs> I mean, she, I got in trouble for it, so oh well. Oh, so she knew. Okay, gotcha. Eventually she figured it out. Yeah, she figured it out because of body language. Like, if somebody is saying something that's not positive, even if you don't understand what's being said, their facial expression kind of shows that they're, like, not not really um, proud or happy with what's going on. But, yeah, like, I would get in trouble. So I would talk a lot. I was always a very inquisitive child growing up, and I would always ask questions. And I always felt like certain teachers um, didn't feed that enough for me. So like if I would ask a question and, you know, I wanted to know more follow stuff, I can understand now as an adult that I was definitely holding up the class, but I just wanted to know. So I was always told like to be quiet and I would just keep talking. I'm like, well, you know, being quiet is not really an answer. I really want to know, you know, X, Y, Z or whatever subject. (laughs) So I would get in trouble with the teacher because I just wouldn't stop talking. So I remember one time in parent teacher conference, the teacher was saying, Something along the lines of, you know, that Nidia is very intelligent and I, I'm really glad to have her as a student. However, when I asked her to, you know, be quiet or so that we can move on for the entire class, she doesn't stop. And when I, when I heard her say that, I'm like, this is a good problem to have in my head, but I just translated it differently to my mom and that didn't turn out well. <laughs> what, what do you remember what you said to your mom? I said some. Well, I definitely kept the the intelligent student part. I didn't talk about of the course, talking or me talking back. <laughs> yeah, I I just admitted that, which is technically well, yeah, it's lying. I lied and I didn't tell my right? mother the whole thing. Right. I mean, they eventually caught on, and um, I got in trouble because my mother was like, "You shouldn't lie like that." That is you, so. You shouldn't funny, lie. Though. Like, I imagine how many children who have this paradigm are taking advantage in this way. Of course. I mean, like, you know, it's there. She said she loves me. That's what she said. <laughs> yeah. That was, I remember those days. That is so Yeah, translating then, is, um, that, I mean, that's another conversation. I never enjoyed translating. So when I learned to use it to my advantage, especially when it came to my mother, I, like, took complete advantage of that. What made you not enjoy translating? Because um, it wasn't just like parent-teacher conferences. It would be stuff like, you know, read this form for me. I need to fill out this application. Mind you, like, I'm just learning how to be proficient in English. So this is like maybe third, fourth grade. Normal third and fourth graders, you know, come home from school, do homework, and then they, like, play with their siblings, you know, maybe do chores and go to sleep. You're giving me this entire packet that I could barely read, and because I can't explain, I'm getting in trouble for it. And it's just like, well, what do I send you to go to school for? And it's just like, well, not to fill out these kinds of packets. Like, I'm a third grader. (laughs) I don't know what this means. But as an adult, it's like, well, they don't know what it means either, and I'm more proficient in this language than they are. So it just felt like... I can see now the trust that was put in me to 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 get this task done, but at the same time, like as a kid, I just resented it because it just felt like the only reason why the only reason why you all are even spending time with me is because you want something from me. It's not even um, age appropriate, you know. And that's what I was thinking that you would say something along the lines of how objectifying it felt. 
Right, right. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with Trap Therapist, the radio show. So did you all live in a Getty Tuna community in South Bronx or was it just in the middle of everything in South Bronx? Um, it was in the middle of everything. So where I grew up is um, not too far from Southern Boulevard on the two and the five line. So there's a lot of Garifuna people in that area. And growing up, like, I went to high school at Jane Addams Vocational High School in, like, off of Prospect. So it's, like, two train stops from, like, where I grew up. So you have, like, little enclaves of, like, Garifuna people. So on the average day of me going to high school, I could run into an aunt and a cousin easy. So that would happen on a regular basis, um, and which is not too far from 3rd Avenue and 149th Street, which is like little little, little Honduras. You, it's, I have so many relatives there. When I used to work in that area on my lunch break, I would run into so many family members. So it was wow. like in the mix of everything. And in certain areas, you would find more Garifuna people than others. And how, I mean, because you were kind of in, in both worlds in a sense, how do African-American and Garifuna cultural norms differ and what challenges have the different norms caused for you since you were you grew up in an African American area or you know African American Latina area? I would say definitely language. Um, if well, you I sent you my picture. Like I'm brown skinned. I'm not light skinned by you are beautiful. So um, thank her. you. She is gorgeous. Thank you, thank you. So by just looking, you don't assume Latina anything. And then out of nowhere, like, I'm speaking in, like, very, very fast-paced Spanish. And everybody, like, to this day, I still get this reaction, especially if you don't know me. It's like, oh, shit. Um, oh, my bad. I didn't know I was going to have to curse. Um, so people, like, look. And it's like, look, oh, I know that from? language. Like, That's what is that? <laughs> people look at me like, oh, where? Or, like, the question I get answered, asked a lot is, like, where did you learn? Or, like, you know, in school, like, what program? And it's just, like, I learned at home. Um, so the language is already different. So when it, when it comes to like culture and customs, I would say even like reference points. So like I'm 32 years old. I went on a cruise last year with some friends, um, for a book launch. And one of the things that came up is, um, let's play spades. And I'm just like, I don't know how to play that. Because again, it just wasn't something that I saw at my house. My sister knows how to play, but she learned in college. So, like, certain, certain references when it comes to culture or, like, certain foods or certain um, games or certain, like, um, I would say, like, traditions, for lack of a better word, I'm, like, completely oblivious to because, again, it just wasn't my reference point. I didn't speak Spanish for close to the first about eight to nine years of my life. So my references are, like, Shusha. Have you ever heard of Shusha? No. You're teaching me a lot today. <laughs> So it's a Brazilian. It's kind of like she was like the Hannah Montana of like Brazil. So she would oh. like like sing in Portuguese. And I don't know what she was saying, but I just remember Shusha. I remember like um, watching um, like Spanish novelas, which I completely enjoyed. I would watch that a lot with my mother. So like when I talk about like cultural references, that's the kind of stuff that I remember playing like Chalupa, um, going to the beach, doing that kind of stuff. So when I talk about my childhood, it's like, well, here you are chastising me about what I don't know about your culture. But, like, if I mention these things to you, you don't know them either. So that that gap was always there. And it comes up from time to time. 
Yeah, I can see that it does. Do you find that most <laughs> of your your friends are African American, or do you have a mixture of friends? I would say a mixture. So I do have a lot of okay. African American friends. I have a lot of like Afro Caribbean friends, um, Africans from Africa that like were raised in the state. So it's a mixture: white friends, uh, Latino friends, everything. Is there anybody that you feel particularly drawn to because maybe that race is closer to yours, or you feel more understood by people that are a part of that community? Um, I would say the Caribbean. Okay. Like the islands. Um, yeah, I would say Caribbean culture feels like the closest to Garifuna culture. I can only imagine, though, how at certain points, before you were able to really conceptualize this, because now you're an adult, you get it. But as a kid, mm-hmm. that must have felt isolating, to, like, not belong any place. Right. Right, and know that, like, my people do exist because I go see them every other summer when I go home. But, like, I'm coming to the States and constantly having to explain and defend what I know is real. So because other people haven't been exposed to it or don't know about it, and this is, like, before Google. So, like, you couldn't find Garifuna people in an encyclopedia set. Like, I know, I know that this is my culture. Like, my parents are way older than me, and they exist, and my grandparents exist. But here I am, here at home in the United States, explaining and having to defend my, my blood and my, my, my people and my, my culture. So, like, with the Internet, thank goodness, like, you can just Google Garifuna and have, like, all these pages of information that come up. But in the early 90s, you know, to late 90s, that wasn't available. Right. Wow. And I just, I think, though, that sometimes being put in scenarios like that where you do understand what isolation feels like, it does allow you to connect with clients better. So how do you think that the challenges you face growing up contribute to your ability to connect with your clients? I think that it's definitely helped a lot. One of the things that I love about being a social worker is that I have the opportunity to understand people that are not understood by most And some of my experiences have helped me. Um, And then certain experiences, although not exactly the same, they're still parallel enough where it's like, okay, I can take some insight from what I have experienced, but also just be present with someone else. Because I don't think that that everything that I've experienced is going to align with a patient, but it could still be parallel enough where it's like, okay, in this moment, I felt misunderstood, and in this moment, although the situation is different, this person still feels misunderstood, and this is where the connect is. Yeah, and I love that you put it like that, because even when I'm counseling uh, parents, and they're talking about how hard it is to understand, like, their children's emotions, or, you know, mm-hmm. because children kind of get upset over things that an adult would look at as petty. I'm always like, well, you might not understand exactly what they're saying, but you have felt sadness before. Or felt like, mm-hmm. you know, your world is coming to an end and over-exaggerated something. So I love that you said that because I think that's a critical skill that mental health providers have to have, just the ability right. to empathize and empathize based on the feeling and not necessarily the experience. Right, right. Because, again, the experience is never going to be replicated. Like, my mom and I used to get into it a lot when I was a kid. Like, I would say things like, you know, I'm sad or I'm not feeling good. She's like, oh, well, what do you have to be sad about? Like, you have everything. Yeah. And it's just like, you're right. 
I, I'm thankful that I don't ever, I've never had to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I've never had to worry about where I'm going to live. But you as an adult have a reference point of what it's like to not have, whereas I don't. You worked hard so that I don't ever have to experience that. So it's like, what's the purpose of throwing that in my face? <laughs> I'm yeah, thankful, yes. That's the most unaffirming thing that, and I know parents Absolutely. mean well, but it is so unaffirming. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You that also used to be our tug of war as a kid. That you didn't deserve to feel certain emotions. Yeah, it was just like, well, what do you have to be mm-hmm. depressed about? And she was like, what kind of question is that? Like, help me understand why you think that I shouldn't feel uh, this feeling that I'm feeling. Because I didn't, I didn't wake up wanting to feel like this. It just is. And children are taught, you know, like, if you feel something, tell me. But I tell you, and I'm not validated. So what's the purpose of, of talking to you at this point? Right, exactly. And I know you actually co-authored a book, uh, which I would love for you to tell us more about. And your chapter focuses on some of the tension that came between you and your mom when you found out that you had polycystic ovarian syndrome. So can you tell us more about the book in general and then a little bit more about your chapter too? So the book is about forgiveness. Um, so it's called Unchained Me Mama, The Forgiveness Factor, um, Understanding Healing Through Understanding. And um, I – so – just a quick, like, overview of, like, that story without getting into too much detail. So I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was, like, about 15 um, years old. And I got my cycle for the first time when I was nine. So for a long time, like, I would get it and I wouldn't get it. And I would get it and I wouldn't get it. And just growing up in the Bronx, it's not, it wasn't rare back then. I mean, and even now, for you to be 14 years old and you're pushing a shoulder and this is your baby. So, like, I just remember as a kid, like, my mother saying, don't get pregnant. Don't get pregnant. Like, don't, don't, um, don't make your life more difficult than it needs to be. It's like, at all costs, do not get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's the message that I got. But the fact that, like, every month I wasn't, I, I, my cycle just wouldn't come. The assumption for her was that I was pregnant or, like, that I was hiding oh, something. Wow. Right. So I'm just like, you know, I felt like I was an obedient child growing up. I mean, considering the circumstances, absolutely. Like, I would even say goody two-shoes to an extent, you know, a far extent. (laughs) And for you to, like, think that of me, like, of course it's going to hurt my feelings. So that created some tension. And finally, like, when I got the diagnosis, it was, like, some relief. Um, And I I just remember being really angry for a long time because it's like you do everything that you're told to do and you're still not believed. So it's like, what's the point of putting effort in anything? So as you can begin to imagine the kind of like um, the kind of relationship that you have with someone that you're supposed to go to for everything, it wasn't right. like that for a while. Yeah, I can totally understand. I don't know um, if you, I'm assuming you follow Trap Therapist, and I recently posted about a conference that I started. It's called Coco Conference, and it mm-hmm. stands for Codependent or Cut Off. And it's just basically a manifestation of what has happened in my personal life and my family, but also mm-hmm. my observations of what happens in, in the lives of women of color who are daughters or mothers, where there's either an unhealthy reliance on each other or there's either this estrangement that occurs. So we're either mm-hmm. codependent or we're cut off. And the goal right. of the conference is to start establishing a healthy middle ground between those two alternatives 
so that mothers and daughters can actually have fulfilling relationships. So I think mm-hmm. that a lot of women, you know, maybe they didn't have it in the instance of PCOS, but a lot of women have experienced that tension between them and their mom. And I think it's so mm-hmm. normal and that it's not, not talked about enough. So I'm appreciative it's that not. you wrote mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's not at all. And I had to learn to forgive because, like, my mother wasn't wrong with the information that she had at the time. And I think that once I learned that the information that she had access to and what she was taught growing up was just dated it was just like okay well had she known maybe maybe the outcome would have been different you can't hold people accountable to what they don't know or don't have access to in the Mm -hmm. moment and when I learned that right when I learned that I was able to like just extend grace and compassion to her because I truly do believe that my mother loves me and she she has done it and will continue to do the best that she can with what's available to her because Again, and then I looked at the fact that, you know, I'm the first daughter. So, like, the way that she parent me and I look at how she treats the twins, I'm just like, who is this parent? <laughs> like, and are the this, twins this girls, version, too? No, it, they're fraternal twins. So, it's a boy and a girl. They're 18 gotcha. years old now. Okay. Because the mother that, the, the, the person that she is to them, like, completely different when I was their age. Completely different um, in, in what she would give and the things that she would say and her level of understanding. But, again... I would think that as parents, you know, you also evolve and grow because who I was mm-hmm. when I was younger is not the 32-year-old version of myself. I mean, some things are, are are my core and will stay the same, but I've also evolved. So if I'm, if I'm allowing myself the ability to grow and learn, my mother has also evolved in her parenting style and how she parents and how she understands things. So, like, I'm here mad at or was mad at, like, the 30-something-year-old version of her and right. I have to forgive that version because she's in her 50s now. Like, you, you, you're either going to choose to be mad and, and keep things the same or you're going to choose to forgive and move, and, and, and move, grow, and learn so that you can love her in her moment and in her element. My mother always says, That's like, good. give me my roses while I'm alive. Like, I don't need to be crying at her grave, you know, begging for forgiveness when I have the opportunity in this moment to make things better. Not for her, but for me. Like, I deserve that for myself. That's really good. Like, I love that you said that because I actually haven't even thought of it in that way. And I don't think a lot of children give their parents the grace to grow up. And, you Mm -hmm. know, there's this thought that once you become a parent, which is why I think people in our generation are holding off becoming parents, Mm -hmm. is because you think you're supposed to have so many things. Like, you need to have materialistic things, but then also have insight and wisdom and pretty much be the person that you're going to be forever. And I think Mm -hmm. that if we think of our parents in that way, then we won't have the grace in order to let them grow and change and develop over time. And that's why people can be so mean growing up, and then they old and they just sweet as pudding. It's like Mm -hmm. they change, you know, but then if you're who they used to be, yeah, that would be hard to forgive. So that's amazing. Mm -hmm. I love that. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with Trap Therapist, the radio show. Now, is the Thank whole you. book like a compilation of stories regarding people who had trouble forgiving their their moms? Yes. So okay. we have co-authors in the book, and everyone shares their personal story about how they forgave their mom. And that's what I love about this book, because it's not like circulating trauma. I think that when it comes to like behavioral health, like people connect with stories that, um, stories 
that are painful, that are hurtful and these experiences, but then it's like, well, what do I do with this now? It's mm-hmm. great that I read this story, but what tips do I have so I can move forward and actively implement, like, as soon as I put down this book? And Unchained Me Mama has that. So it's like, you know, you're reading the story, you're learning from it, you're seeing the success that came from a place of pain, but now it's like, okay, now you have practical tips that you can implement so that you can start to shift some of the relationships in your life, whether it doesn't even have to be like your biological mother. It could be like a maternal figure in your life or a mentor or a woman that you love. How do I shift this relationship so that it is healthy for me? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I would definitely have to get together outside of this platform because even Mm -hmm. if you all just sell it at the conference, I mean, I think that would be powerful because what you just said is so true. I think so many people trauma bond and it's like, well, my mom abused me. Well, my mom did too. Okay, now we're friends. Right. And no one out of that dynamic. Me neither. Mm -hmm. I want to heal. So I don't have time to be talking about what somebody did and you know I need to get out of that and I I, that's Mm -hmm. why I love this conference because it's not going to be that and I've even gotten a lot of people who I feel like are hurt still say that they want to be speakers and I'm you know in the back of my mind I'm like well it doesn't seem like you're quite over what happened so I wouldn't Mm -hmm. want you to get in front of people and re-traumatize them and I I love what you said about circulating trauma we don't need to do that let's just no. Get over it. And it, that sounds mm-hmm. very insensitive. And by it, I don't mean just snap your fingers and it's over, but let's do the work that it takes to really overcome this. And it does right. look a lot different when somebody's still mistreating you because it's like, how do you forgive somebody that's actively needing forgiveness over and over? And that's a little mm-hmm. different. But I think a lot of us are just upset about things that our parents did in the past. And we got to mm-hmm. stop living in the past. And that's hard to do, which is why I love Unchain Me Mama, because it it does give you steps, like practical and tangible steps. It's all about boundaries. Like, again, you don't have to be that person that, you know, gives gives your time and attention every time that someone calls you. Like, I have a girlfriend. Her name is um, Erica Slayton. I met her when I came to Atlanta. She's also got Isuna, too, from Belize. And I remember we went out for breakfast one day. And she was talking about, like, this self-sacrificing love that as black women we're taught to be like, you know, I'm available to you whenever you need me. And it's just like okay. this, I'm not, I'm not going to give up the shirt off my back and then be shirtless. Like, I'm going to pray for two shirts, one for me and one right. for you, because I can't love you if I'm not giving myself that love and attention. So, uh-huh. like, when it comes to forgiveness, um, one of the things that I also got from her when we were talking is, like, family teaches you temperament. So, like, if I'm not, if I have conflict with my mother or my siblings or my dad, like these, these personality traits are going to show up in other areas of my life, in, in intimate yeah. partner relationships and friendships and business. Like if I learn or not if, when I did learn how to manage them in a, and interact with them in a way that was healthy, everything is easy breezy after that because nobody triggers you more than your family. That's so true. Nobody. You are right. <laughs> My mother can say something to me and it rubs me the wrong way and my whole day is off. But when I learned how to understand her, how to validate my feelings in relation to her and how to, you know, set those boundaries, it's like I see I see my mother's personality traits in other people and it doesn't bug me one bit, but that's because I address the source. So this is why healing and forgiveness is so important. And it's not for her, it's for me. Like when people, Absolutely. I feel like, 
when that mind shift comes in where it's like, you know, I'm doing this for me. I'm prioritizing my needs. I'm prioritizing how I react to things. Um, and instead of reacting, respond in a way that's healthy, like your whole world changes. I also think the concept of dysfunction is sometimes misunderstood by people. So I've seen a lot of families where there's so much underlying tension and hatred for one another and resentment, and mm-hmm. but they all get together every birthday and every family reunion, sometimes every weekend, and pretend like it's not there. <laughs> and that's described as function because we talk to each other. Whereas right. people who may decide that, you know, I can only talk to these people every so often and still maintain respect for them, that then is dysfunctional because there's distance. And in mm-hmm. my opinion, I'm thinking as long as we're healthy, distance doesn't make it dysfunction. Dysfunction to right. me is like we're pretending. So I think that's right. another thing that stops forgiveness where people feel like they have to put on shows and, you know, really act like something is what it's not. Right. I mean, and it's easy to pretend, realistically speaking, when you look at it, like addressing addressing issues, healing from things um, that happened when they did, it's hard. So no wonder people don't do it. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. It's extremely hard, but not impossible. And I think that for me, that was the biggest thing. Like, it's not impossible. People have forgiven their mothers. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to work through this as long as I dedicate the time and have open conversations about things that need to be said in a respectful way. I'm definitely going to purchase uh, a copy of it. And like I said, we'll definitely have to talk offline about you all participating in Coco in some way. Mm -hmm. Like I said, even if it's just to vend the books or even if Mm -hmm. it's to have an ad that women know that this book is available because Mm -hmm. it sounds heavy, like there's some heavy work happening. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you have a ton of experience in a bunch of different areas. You just talked about you doing some mother-daughter and forgiveness kind of work. You also had experience uh, working with survivors of commercial sex or exploitation. And then you also have a platform where you encourage women to embrace who they naturally are. And that's a lot. That's so many different niches. I'm sure you're (laughs) passionate about all of them. But what about clinicians or aspiring clinicians who are out there and they're struggling to determine what their niche in the field should be. Is there any advice you have for them? Um, I think that connecting with um, organizations and platforms that are of interest to you is very, very important. So like in 2017, I joined Black Therapist Rock BTR. And I think that that, for me, reignited my passion when it comes to psychotherapy and providing behavioral health services for people because it focused more on my um, my academic learning outside of, you know, I have to serve, 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 serve other people. And it's like, it's good to be of service, but you can't give to other people what you don't have. So I really took time for myself to just focus on, like, what's interesting to me? What part of this, you know, therapeutic world do I love? Like, what brings me joy? And even though you are servicing a big group of people, there's certain clients that will always stand out. And the thing that always stood out for me is, like, how hair plays a role in depression, how natural hair um, affects a woman's self-esteem. Like, I remember one time I had a client, so I I wore a twist out. I always wear twist outs to work, but this particular twist out was amazing. (laughs) Like, it was it was flourishing in the wind. And when she came in, she was like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
She was like, what did you put in your hair? We spent like the first 15 minutes of that session just talking about hair. And it felt so, so like natural for me and like so light to just share with someone things that have worked for me, but also just provide tools, not tell her like, you know, we'll buy XYZ products and do the same exact thing that I did, but just like encouraging her to, to use what works best for her so that she can create her own individual beauty because it's not going to look like mine and, and hers, is, hers isn't going to look like mine and mine isn't going to look like hers, but in, in a way that, that doesn't feel um, isolating or doesn't feel like, you know, you need to be this type in order to be black and beautiful. And I was just like, I have, I had to like really like pay attention to that because I never before joining BTR really even thought about natural hair even being a thing when it, when it relates to behavioral health. It absolutely does. If you grow up with a certain texture of hair and you're constantly being told that you're not, you're not enough of this or enough of that, of course, that's going to shift how you look at yourself. Of course, that's going to shift how you show up in the world. So supporting women, black women, especially to love themselves and embrace their, their beauty as is has always been a passion of mine. And now I can do something with it. So from, from all of that, I get that your niche is inside of you. It's in the midst of personal experiences, things that you might do every day that you overlook. Right. It's really just a, it's a compilation of everything that you're interested in. And sometimes I don't mm-hmm. think we think about that. We're, we're looking outside of ourselves to find our purpose when it's really inside. Right, right. Like when I was in I college, I used to braid hair. That I never worked retail. I could never get a retail job. But I had all the people. And I went to undergrad in Vermont. So you can only begin to imagine that Girl. there's not a lot of black people there anyway. <laughs> right. So I am like the only one, you know, with addition, like, the only person that could actually braid, and I, I still have, like, an album to this day when, when I used to, like, print pictures um, of, like, designs, box sprays, twists. I used to just do everything. So that, that's how I got extra money in my pocket throughout undergrad. I used to just braid. So, like, hair has always been something that I, I've enjoyed and been passionate about. That's beautiful. I love that. So Thank you. There have definitely been so many gems dropped throughout this conversation, and I'm sure there are listeners who want to connect with you or follow your brand. How can they do so? So on Instagram, my um, handle is Miss Gweety, M-S-G-U-I-T-Y, L-C-S-W, and my website is MissGweety.com. Okay. And we're definitely going to tag you in all of our publications and stuff so that people can know um, you know, how to get in contact with you. They can just click it instead of the link they have to type it all in. So we'll definitely yeah. do that. So here comes the time for our trap trivia. I know you said I got to brush myself <laughs> up on this. <laughs> I think you'll get it right. I don't purposely make them hard, and this one is not very hard at all. So I'm sure you'll get it right. Even though I know okay. you did say that you're not that, you know, informed about African-American culture. But it is something that it's a recent person. So I think, okay, you, well, we'll I think you'll get it right. We'll see. Okay. So after the death of his mother in 2007, this rapper became depressed and later admitted to having suicidal thoughts. On his 2018 single, Yikes, he shared that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Who is the rapper? Kanye, Kanye West? Yes. Ah! 
another ride? <laughs> Girl, that scream sound like I was about to give you a million dollars after. I don't have that. <laughs> yes, it's Kanye West. Amazing. Okay. See? You got it right. See, I, so think- I only know that because my brother is a Kanye West fan. That's the oh. only reason. Because otherwise, so I don't, don't listen. Kanye. No. <laughs> See, I'm a Kardashian fan. I know I shouldn't be. Just don't judge me. But I'm a Kardashian mm-hmm. fan, and obviously he's up there on their show because he's married to Kim. And I think I'm a Kardashian fan only because the life they live, I probably will never live. It is so fascinating to me to just, like, have all that money and do whatever you want to do. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. I just watch it with my mouth open. Like, really? (laughs) (laughs) But maybe one day, you never know. I keep doing this. I might become Oprah and girl. Yes. Thank you for listening to Trap Therapist, the radio show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To stay connected to the Trap Therapist community, follow us on Instagram at Trap Therapist.